0: Okay, welcome everybody to the Sunday program for the Dhamma Vinaya Order. I'm Reverend Dhamma Bodhi, aka John Fries, and I'm going to be giving a talk today, introducing a general overview of the Samyutta Nikaya, the the connected discourses in the Pali Canon. Um, so first, though, I want to present. This is a a theoretical framework i have come up with during my 10 years of graduate school that i call the four modes of knowledge production and so i use this when i'm teaching world religions and um i'm using it as a framework to when i'm talking about buddhism and comparing it to other traditions i'm using this as a framework so i call it the four modes of knowledge production so it's it's a little bit taken on Freud. So Freud has what we know. I'm oh, sorry, uh, Marx. I get Freud and Marx confused. <laughs> uh, Marx came up with the modes of production, right? So you have what he calls primitive accumulation. Um, then you have feudalism. Then you have capitalism. And then now the ideas were supposed to go from capitalism to communism or socialism um but for me as a buddhist i think it doesn't do that that framework doesn't do a good enough job um giving more detail about pre-modern society Um, and it tends to privilege a scientific materialist worldview and an academic worldview over um other worldviews and other ways of um, producing knowledge um so i developed this framework i call the four modes of knowledge production so um I'm going to frame it in the context of Buddhism because that's what I'm talking about today and that's how I developed it. Um, So we can think in Northeast India before Buddhism showed up, there was probably some kind of village shamanic mode of knowledge production. And we can separate between hunter-gatherer villages and agricultural villages. Um, But even if you separate between those two things, there's a fair amount of commonality between um between them in terms of just um common characteristics um so as i'm going to say later on in the slides we we actually don't really know what the religion was in northeast india before the time of buddhism um so i'm just speculating that there was some kind of village shamanic um mode of knowledge production before buddhism jainism and other um what I call city-state yogic traditions showed up in Northeast India. So the city-state yogic, and when we're talking about Buddhism would be what is early Buddhism in Northeast India. Um, But you also have Jainism, you also have the Ajivakas. um, Those would be other examples of city-state yogic traditions in India. And then you could compare that to um early Taoism in China before the Han the Han Dynasty that um, early Taoism was also a city-state yogic um, tradition and then later on you have the what I call the imperial clerical so that's when the reading and writing comes in um so in Buddhism we would have Theravada Buddhism and then Mahayana Buddhism those would be um, the later scholastic traditions that came in with Buddhism. Um, and so those are separate from the earlier yogic tradition, which would have been an oral tradition, not a written tradition. And then with with um, modernity, then you have the nation state academic mode of knowledge production. So that's, you can think of as the university system. And um, um, it tends to be based in scientific materialism, whereas the imperial clerical tends to be some kind of religious worldview, um, and it's put forward tradition. Originally, it would have been monks and nuns who are doing reading and writing. Um, And then later on, you get the nation-state academic, and so that's where you have um, usually lay people that are professors. So the imperial clerical and the nation-state academic are both reading and writing. They're both scholastic modes of knowledge production. Um, And so I'm saying that they came later uh, and early Buddhism is actually city state yogic. Okay. So then there's this Indologist. Indologist is a fancy word for somebody that studies India uh, named Johannes Bronkhorst. And so he's done the research about what's known as greater Magadha. So the, the, the culture of Northeast India in which the Buddha lived in. Um, Bronkhorst calls it greater Magadha. And so again, he says, we don't know much about Northeast India before Jainism, Buddhism, the Ajivikas. Um, But he does say it was a separate and distinct zone from the Vedic cultural zone of Northwest India. So that's a pretty big breakthrough. People used to think um, North India was all Hinduism and then Buddhism came out of the Hinduism. But what Bronkhorst is saying is no Hinduism was in Northwest India within the Vedic cultural zone. And that was separate and distinct from Northeast India, which was what he's calling greater Magadha. Um, So Buddhism did not come out of Hinduism. It came out of whatever was there already in Northeast India. Okay, so so Greater Magadha then arose via the second urbanization of India as a network of city-states. So the first um, urbanization was the Indus River Valley civilization, which is in what is now Pakistan, the Punjab. Um, it was around for a while, and then it faded. And then the second um, urbanization started in northeast India, and that's, again, the rise of these um, city-states. There was like a network of city states, um, and so Greater Magadha was this uh, second urbanization in India. Okay, and so so Buddhism, Jainism, the Ajivikas came out of Greater Magadha in northeast India. Okay, so here you can see a map of the city states of Greater Magadha. Uh, this is 500 BC, so it would have been. Um, just a little bit before the Buddha. So Magadha is the city-state here that... It's like these different tributaries of the Gandhis River are coming together and concentrating. So Magadha was a, a place of concentration when it came to um, trade. And then as agriculture developed, it became like a center for agriculture. So the Buddha is coming from this region of kosala he's coming from the shakya clan he's uh he grew up in kapilavastu which is near Srivasti. and so he went to magadha that's where he got into meditation that's where he practiced that's where he realized nirvana um and in, then he spent the rest of his life basically moving around um mostly between Savati and rajgir so between um kosala and Magadha, um and so he was he was operating within this network of city states you could say um and so what was happening is that you have these city states you have these uh, monarchs that are in charge of the city states and then they're donating they're donating parks or land outside of the cities for this emerging um wandering yogic uh Basically, with with the rise of the city-states, then you have um, a trade guild society. So th- there was no caste system in Greater Magadha in Northeast India. It was a trade guild society, um, merchants, farmers, hunters, um, but also yogic practitioners. So that because there was a, um, this advance in agriculture, there could be people concentrating on spe- specialized tasks, basically. Um, so it allowed then for groups of people to just just to do full-time yogic practice. Um, so there was a whole movement of different people going into the forest or going into these parks outside of cities, engaging in this yogic practice. And so the Buddha was just one of many of these people doing that. Um, and Buddhism was just one of the different city-state yogic traditions that came up out of that. Okay, so then... Um, the Mauryan Empire arose out of greater Magadha. So you got the city-states that are just a network of city-states. And then later on, then you have the Mauryan Empire coming out of that. So Chandragupta was the founder. He was a follower of Jainism. And he basically spread the network of city-states throughout India. And... Um, so it started in Northeast India and it spread over all of North India and then it spread down the coast. And so basically the city States enveloped the Vedic cultural zone. What was the early Hinduism zone? It got surrounded by all the city States basically. Okay. And then his grandson was Ashoka, who's the famous emperor that was Buddhist. Um, And so that's kind of the the Mauryan Empire. You can think of starting with Chandragupta and then um, Ashoka. Um, his grandson was Buddhist. Okay, so this map is showing the Vedic cultural zone in northwest India. Um, so it's basically like a network of villages, and then here's the map of the Mauryan Empire. So so. The Mauryan Empire starts with Greater Magadha, and then eventually it just spreads all the way over North India. They envelop the the Vedic cultural zone, um, and they get cities as far as what's now Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then they have cities going down the coast, and then where the rivers and land trade allows, it, it also they go inland. So this is the Mauryan Empire, and so even though some of the like Chandragupta was was into Jainism. Ashoka was into Buddhism, but they they basically were tolerant of all of the different traditions. So Buddhism, as well as the other city-state yogic traditions, spread with the Mauryan Empire. And so the city-states were open, open places where people of whatever religion you're into could be practicing them. Um, so even though Ashoka was Buddhist and supported Buddhist monasteries, the overall empire was open to um, whatever religion people wanted to practice. Okay, so now we're going to get to the Samhita Nikaya. So Ajahn Sujata, who's a Thai forest monk, his research has shown that the Samyutta Nikaya is the oldest collection in the Pali Canon. So the Pali Canon contains different collections called Nikayas, and he's arguing that the Samhita is the oldest. He says it's an interconnected system of teachings focused on the Four Noble Truths. And based on my research, um, it appears that the 12 links of dependent origination is the core theory within the Samyutta Nikaya. And the 16 exercises of mindfulness of breathing appears to be the core meditation practice inside the Samyutta Nikaya. And then, um, what in, in the U.S. within the so-called Western Vipassana movement, A lot of people think it's the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Four Establishments of Mindfulness, um, which is a longer discourse that is more in keeping with later Theravada scholasticism. Um, A lot of people think that's what the Buddha taught for meditation and that that's representing the earliest teachings. But according to Sujato, no. um, The Satipatthana Sutta is a later discourse and it's, it's more keeping with later Theravada scholasticism and it's not what the Buddha taught when it came to meditation. So this is a a fairly big breakthrough. Same thing as people having a breakthrough that Buddhism did not come out of um, Hinduism. It came out um, as part of a separate cultural thing. Uh, This is another breakthrough seeing that what people thought the Buddha taught for meditation is actually later scholastic teachings and not what he taught. Okay, so Sujata's methodology is that he 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 compared the Theravada Nikaya. So the, the Pali Canon, the main collections are the Digga Nikaya, the Majima Nikaya, the Samyutta Nikaya, the Anguttara Nikaya. Digga means long discourse, Majima means middle length. Samyutta means connected, meaning discourses that are organized around themes. And then Anguttara means numbered discourses. So discourses organized around um, numbers. So like the Four Noble Truths or the Five Aggregates or the Twelve Links, etc. So the Pali Canon is one collection within Theravada Buddhism. He compared the Pali Canon with other existing early canons. So one is from the Sarvastivada school, which is originally in Sanskrit. And so it's called the Agamas. And then it got translated into Chinese. And so it it survives in Chinese, but it was originally in Sanskrit. And then there are some other Agamas from other schools um, that are also translated into Chinese. So what he found was that the Samyutta Nikaya was the only collection in which there was significant overlap in terms of the structure and the content, whereas the other collections, when he compared them with the other early canons, they didn't have the same level of um, overlap. And so he he posits then that because there is overlap with the Samyutta Nikaya, that this means then there was a, a common collection of root texts. And then as, as Buddhism spread to these different areas, um, other other collections got added in, but that there this is probably representing a common um, collection of texts that were together at the earlier stage, and that um, that went along with the different schools as they developed. And so, based on that, he's arguing then that that this then the Samyutta Nikaya probably represents the oldest layer. Um, so when I when I look at it, it does come across as um something that could be it comes across as a collection of oral tradition teachings that um it it reads like something that uh is an oral tradition and it makes sense as an oral tradition um i I don't have time to go too deep into that point so i'm just going to finish up by making a couple more points and then um we'll shift to discussion Okay, so what Sujato argues is that the Samita Nikaya is basically an interconnected system of teachings about the four noble truths. And so he he argues that the Buddha did indeed um he gave a discourse giving an overview, overview of the four noble truths, and that's considered his first discourse. And then um Sujato is saying then that the Samyutta Nikaya is like an interconnected system of teachings that are all organized around the Four Noble Truths. And it's like basically a deep dive into the Four Noble Truths. Um and so the collection is a bunch of um shorter discourses that are all interconnected with each other. Whereas the the later um the later collections have longer discourses that come across as more scholarly and more. Kind of wonky, whereas these these come across as earlier more um, kind of pith instructions or essential teachings um, that are meant to be seen as a body of teachings that are connected together. So if you were just focusing on one section, you wouldn't you wouldn't you can't understand the whole thing unless you um, see it as an in- interconnected network. Okay, so. You have the Samyutta Nikaya, which is in Pali. In Sanskrit, it's called the Samyukta Agama. And so according to Ajahn Sujato and Bhikkhu Bodhi, they've they've compared the Samyutta Nikaya and the Pali Canon with the Samyukta Agama from the Sarvastivada uh, school. And in the in the Sanskrit version the order of the collections um is like this it goes like this it, you have um the book of the five aggregates so vaga means book and kanda means aggregates so you have the kanda vaga then you have the salayatana vaga which is the book on the six sense spaces then you have the nidana vaga which is the book on the 12 links of so dependent origination and then you have the maga vaga which is um Again, Vaga means book and Maga means path. So this is the order in the Samyukta Agama. And so Sujato and Bhikkhu Bodhi both think this is an old order that because it goes along with the Four Noble Truths, they think this is probably the original order of the collections. So later on in the Pali Canon, the, the, the order gets changed around. So it's not this order anymore in the Pali Canon. Um but but again, Sujato and Bikubodi think this is the, the older order is um within the Sanskrit collection, they think that's the actual original order. So that's how they like to talk about the collections in the poly canon. Even, even though it doesn't follow that order, that's how they like to talk about it. So what they argue then is that The book on the five aggregates and the book on the six sense spaces are related to the first noble truths. And then the book on the 12 links of dependent origination are talking about the second and third noble truths. And then the book on the path, which would be the eightfold path, as well as the four noble truths, that 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 represents the fourth noble truth. Okay, and so this you can see then as. um, So, what I, what my hypothesis is that the Samyutta Nikaya, I think it has the, I think it has within it the oral teachings that go back to the time of the Buddha. Um, The Samyutta Nikaya has teachings from the Buddha, from senior disciples, uh, also lay disciples, monks, nuns. Uh, Lay men, lay women. Um, And it reads like something that goes, that starts at the time of the Buddha and goes all the way to the time of Ashoka. uh, Basically, that's when I'm reading it, that's that it it comes across like that. Um, So I'm seeing early Buddhism then as starting with the time of the Buddha, roughly 400 BCE, uh, going all the way to Ashoka with the Mauryan Empire. And so you could see. The Samyutta Nikaya, it, it probably contains within it the early core texts from the Buddha himself and his early disciples, and then probably stuff that got added later on um, going all the way into the Mauryan Empire. Um, but you can see then, though, just looking at this core structure, it already gives you a pretty solid um collection of teachings that seem to be like the Buddha knew what he was doing, organizing this, um, collection of teachings. So even before you get into the content of the discourses, you can see this, this works as an oral tradition in terms of like, um, it's providing this core framework. So just all you have to know is, okay, there are these teachings on the five aggregates and, and the gist of the teaching is, um, Suffering is identifying and attaching to the five aggregates. And so the discourses in that collection, that's that's the guts of what it's getting at. Same thing with the six sense bases. It's saying suffering is identifying with and attaching to the six sense bases. Um, so that's what that one's getting at. Then when you get into the 12 links, that's that's getting into talking about rebirth as the mechanics of the rebirth. And so that's um, core teachings that are getting into how is, how is rebirth as basically saying re- rebirth is suffering. And so then the 12 links talks about the cause of rebirth and the cessation of rebirth. And so that's the core of what the 12 links is getting at. And then when you get into the magavaga, then that's getting into the, um, the actual practice, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths. Um, and so then that's you can just drill down into um different sets of teachings that are getting into the core practices but again b- so before you even get into the the discourses themselves and the detailed um the content of it you can just see this overall structure that's already there and so to me this it makes sense that the buddha would have developed this structure to begin with um and it seems pretty plausible that this is the original structure and before you know anything else this is something that it's it's plausible that it was developed by the buddha and that it could have been maintained by the oral tradition um it's not a stretch to think of it like that okay so i'm just going to close them by saying a little more about early buddhism as a city-state yogic tradition So when you get into the Maga Vaga and you get into the teachings on meditation practice itself, it gets into the teachings on Satipatthana. So Sati means mindfulness, patana means establishing. It has four different elements. So it's translated commonly as the four establishments of mindfulness, but um, literally it would mean mindfulness establishing or establishing mindfulness. And in the early teachings, you have kaya, which means the body, vedana, which means sensation, citta, which means heart-mind, and then dhamma, which means the teachings or just the dhamma. And in the early yogic context, then, the kaya means breath. It means body posture. It means the sensations as the four elements. And then when you get into sensation, a lot of people translate it as feeling, but feeling can get confused as emotion. It's not emotion, it's sensation, sensation as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So I like to think the body is like the first layer. It's just the raw experience of sensation as four elements. And then when you get to Vedana, it's adding in, you're still working with the same sensation, but now you're focusing on, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Then heart-mind means awareness of awareness itself plus movement within the heart-mind, which are the the thoughts happening within it. And then the dhamma means a deeper context, which I would argue means the the 12 links of dependent origination is the, the deeper context. So this is the early yogic understanding of the four establishments. It's different from the later scholastic understanding which is what is the common understanding these days and which when most people talk about it, um, they're not talking about this, they're talking about a later scholastic understanding. So my my argument is that this, this is an early core yogic contemplative structure. And when you compare it to other yogic traditions, so you have early Taoism, it has a similar what I call a three-one yogic structure. So um, say with Chans in Buddhism, you have body posture, you have the breath, you have the heart mind. So those are the three um, things that you're, you're practicing awareness of. And then there's a deeper context, which is Buddha nature. In Hindu yoga, you have asana, which is body posture, prana, which is breath energy, chitta, which is heart mind. And then you have purusha, which is witnessing self, So again, it's this three things that you're aware of and then a deeper context. Same thing in Taoism. You have Jing, which is energy becoming matter. Uh, Also sexual energy. Then you have Qi, which is the breath energy. Then you have Shen, which is the heart, mind or awareness. And then you have the Tao, which is the deeper context. So the general idea then is I see early Buddhism The four establishments is putting forward this yogic structure. You have the three things you're aware of and then the deeper context. And this is in keeping with other uh, yogic contemplative structures from other yogic traditions. In the case of early Taoism, it also developed as part of a city-state yogic culture and oral tradition. And then in other other traditions of practice, you have the same structure showing up. So the point I'm trying to make then is we should look at early Buddhism as a yogic teaching, um, not as um, some kind of later philosophy or psychology or um, some kind of later scholastic thing. It it really does look like it's a yogic uh, oral uh, teaching and it it has more in common with these other yogic traditions, arguably than it does with later scholastic Buddhism. Okay. So that is my time. I'm uh, 30 minutes. There is up. So now I will uh, stop the share and then we can move to um, discuss- questions slash discussion. Okay so um does anyone have any questions comments feedback uh to start off with anything that came up with came up for you during the talk Can
1: you um can you shed a little bit of light on the uh, the um academic timeline uh in terms of uh you know these proposals um for the connected discourses um this proposal uh, of its um sort of uh status as the
0: earlier right Sure. Um, Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you my uh, Zotero library. So for those of you who don't know, Zotero is like a wonky thing that where you can, if you're a scholar, you can use it to keep track of all your resources. Um, So I can show you then when certain publications were made just by going through my uh, Zotero
2: Okay, hold on. I have to move my
1: Zoom
0: ribbon out of the way. Okay, I'm being indirect because I'm starting with Brown course first, but, um, so Bronkhorst came out with his uh book called Greater Magadha Studies in the Culture of Early India. So that was in 2007. So that was when his research is saying early Buddhism developed separately from Hinduism and Greater Magadha was part of the second urbanization northeast India. That was 2007. Uh, then he had another book that came out in 2011 that's Buddhism in the Shadow of Brahmanism, and that he he makes the similar point, but kind of goes further into comparing how Buddhism and Greater Magadha was separate from uh, Hinduism and Brahmanism. Um, in that book, he talks about the Mauryan Empire um, as not having the caste system. Um, apparently, there was like a Greek a Greek guy that visited the Mauryan Empire, uh, I think during the time of Chandragupta, and they had six different positions in society, but they were all different like uh, trades, basically. It wasn't like a caste system. It was like some people are hunters, some people are um, farmers, some people are craftspeople, uh, some people are black. There was like six different things. So it came across as a, a trade guild society, basically. Mm. Um, Okay, so that's 2007-2011. Then Ajahn Sujato. So his main work is called History of Mindfulness. And I have that here. It says the first edition is 2005, and then the second, I guess, another edition is 2012. And he calls it A History of Mindfulness How Insight Worsted Tranquility in the Satipatthana Sutta. <laughs> um, so he is basically saying that the Theravada scholastic understanding of meditation and what has been put forward by, um, say, for example, the Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, uh, mindfulness based stress reduction, um, as well as um, just general Theravada scholasticism, that, that that understanding is a later scholastic understanding. It's not the early understanding. And so um, anyway, this this is the book where he, it's a deep dive where he goes into all this research comparing the different canons and figuring out that the Samyutta Nikaya is the earliest layer. Um so he published this with his own press, uh Santipada. So he's a scholar monk in the Thai Force tradition. So he did this not as part of a university degree or not as part of an, an official academic program. Um, but it's it's the evidence, the the research seems solid, and nobody has challenged it so far. There's no one has come a, no one has put up a challenge. Um, so far it's standing it hasn't uh it hasn't been challenged um but to a large degree it's been ignored basically um so over the past 10 years the mainstream academic discussion of buddhism it's basically ignored it's basically ignored this stuff um so i think there's a bias there's a bias towards scholasticism over oral tradition, and there's already a heavy investment in this Theravada scholastic understanding. There's so many people invested in it as being that way. It seems like they just they don't want to deal with trying to think about it any other way, basically. <laughs> um, so to, to to answer it more in a more brief thing, you, we could say it's been over the past 15 years that this stuff has come out. Um, but so far, it's only been small circles of people that have taken it seriously. And um, um, another another big breakthrough has been in Taoism. Actually, I just got this book the other day. Hold on. Uh, this is from Hal Roth from Brown University, the uh, Contemplative Foundations of Classical Taoism. And he makes a similar similar argument that early Taoism came out of a city-state oral tradition, and it was before the Han Dynasty, it was before the um later scholastic Taoism. So what do you know of like the Dao De Jing and uh the the Chuangzi? That's later scholastic Taoism. Um and it came in with Han Dynasty and um Again, scholasticism. Whereas early Taoism, oral tradition, again they have these dealing with the the Jing energy, the breath energy, the heart mind energy, and then the deeper context of the Tao, that yoga contemplative structure. It's there already in early Taoism as an oral tradition. Um, but the later scholastic Taoism kind of covered it up. Um and then it, the the tradition continued. You still have Taoist people that are into working with the three energies, um, doing it as a yogic practice. But but people said, oh, that came later, and that that's like the superstitious Taoism or the Taoism that's in the magic and stuff like that, and um, it's not the real Taoism. But that's just an argument that the the scholastics are making. Um, Whereas what, based on Hal Ross research, no, that, that early Taoism is the real early Taoism. And those yogic teachings were there from the beginning. Um, so it's, it's a similar argument or a similar situation that you have with Buddhism, that that the earlier yogic tradition had got covered over through, based on the bias of scholasticism over the um, yogic oral tradition. Um, and so that's another... Another breakthrough that's happened um, within the past ten years or so, um, and it, it's held, uh, but again, it's still it's still kind of on the periphery because the mainstream academia doesn't doesn't yet. They don't want to deal with the oral tradition and the yogic tradition. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ferris has a question. Uh, do you think anything was lost when this tradition transitioned from oral to written? moving from a tradition that has to be experienced and taught firsthand to one that was read about in books. Um, So it seems like with the Mauryan Empire, um, you had the different yoga traditions that were in the different city-states, and they were all pretty much running as oral tradition. Um, But the Mauryan Empire was engaging in trade with um, the Greek and Roman uh, empires, um Which had already gotten into scholasticism um so apparently the the oral traditions tried to hold on they tried to hold on and and they tried to keep from converting over to the written tradition over time as trade in India developed, and there started to be more trade um based on the ocean, basically merchants trading through um you could put you can put a lot of stuff on a boat and move it on a boat way more easily than you can put it on a camel um, <laughs> so, um, so there was all this trade happening um based on boats going over the ocean, and the way that the merchants kept track of the trade was by writing stuff down and so uh professor lancaster Lewis Lancaster has argued that the reading and writing came into india came into buddhism through the sea merchants and mainly through mahayana buddhism Uh, you had sea merchants that um basically there was like the 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 buddhist monks and nuns and the sea merchants were cooperating with each other um and so lancaster believes that the reading and writing came in with the sea trade um So my sense is that the, the oral tradition had a core set of teachings and that it was able to maintain and transmit those teachings for a long time. Um, and then, so then when, when the teachings eventually got written down, you have the core stuff that is in the oral tradition. Um, and then you have later stuff that got added. And then with the reading and writing and with, um, the monasteries and then monks and nuns getting into the reading and writing and becoming scholastic. You have probably a whole bunch of other stuff that got added in later, which is based on people getting into the reading and writing. So the big question then is, is the oral yogic teaching still alive or does it get lost, um, with the scholastic written tradition? Um, so, we can look at modern examples you you can look at in Thailand with the um revival of meditation that happened. You have monks and nuns that went into the forest and they basically revived the oral yogic tradition, and they're the ones that got drawn to the teachings in the in the canon that were speaking to that yogic uh tradition of practice so it's almost like they were able to reactivate the oral yogic teachings um so i think when you have it the the ideal is that you have the oral yogic teachings and you never lose touch with that and then you can add in the later scholastic teachings that get more deeper into truth claims about the nature of reality or it gets into more sophisticated teachings about the nature of consciousness etc um, the danger is when you have monks and nuns or lay people that they just want to get into the scholasticism that they, they don't want to meditate anymore. And then what happens is people get over-focused on <clears throat> the more kind of philosophical scholastic teaching. And then, and then the, the yogic stuff gets lost. Um, the The living yogic tradition is no longer kept alive or it's no longer understood. Um but what seems to happen in Buddhism is over and over a yogic tradition will get reactivated. Um, and and it seems, you know, what I was showing in that slide, comparing the different, like the Taoist, the Hindu and the Buddhist, and then the later Zen Chan Buddhism. It seems like there's this essential contemplative structure that it people just keep reactivating it or it keeps getting rediscovered just based on if if you're engaging in meditation practice this seems to be a core thing that will just keep popping up again and again um, yeah so the so the the danger is that can get people can just want to get into reading and writing and just talking about it as like a wonky uh scholastic discussion and then they they lose touch with the yogic oral tradition those teachings get lost or covered over, um, yeah. So that's the danger. Uh, Corey, yes, you have a question.
1: You started to address this, I think, in that final um, statement, uh, but uh, just sort of as a devil's advocate. Um, you know, is isn't all of this sort of just academic sectarianism? Uh, it, you know, and uh, or you know, what what do you see as the most significant aspects of this um, sort of shift in perspective um, in terms of how it relates to the practices for lay people and how we as lay, uh, you know, as lay priests or um, lay ministers um, engage with our audience of lay practitioners. So, you know, what What does this reveal or change in terms of how we might want to approach um,
0: offering the Dhamma? to other lay practitioners right um so the common teaching that's out there now is the four establishments um and so the way it's taught say by insight meditation society or spirit rock they'll teach it as mindfulness of the body mindfulness of emotions mindfulness of thoughts and then their deeper context is um the teachings that all all conditioned phenomena are impermanent suffering and not self and then the way they teach the practice is you're mindful of your breathing and then you're just open to whatever is arising and then you're using the four establishments as a way of um labeling what's happening right so if you have a sensation in your body come up you 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 label that as okay that's the body um if you have an emotion come up you label that as okay that's an emotion um if you have thoughts come up you label that as thoughts um whereas the early teaching it's actually saying no you need to practice mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of the whole body and that's your foundational uh framework um you're not just allowing whatever to come up, to come up. You are consciously choosing, no, I want to focus on the breathing and I want to focus on the whole body. And then, and then I weave in the experience of emotion, but I'm aware of emotion as body sensation. Um, I'm not trying to be aware of emotion as just emotion in an abstract way. It's you, you want to be aware of emotion as body sensation. And then, The teachings on the links of dependent origination basically make, it has a lot lot in common with somatic uh, trauma therapy and in particular somatic experiencing um, from Peter Levine. So when you dig in to how the links are talked about in the early texts, and then when you look at um, modern examples of that teaching put into practice. So for example, Goenka Vipassana Vipassana meditation taught by Goenka, or um, in the Thai forest tradition, um, Ajahn Semedo's teaching on the Four Noble Truths, Um, they're teaching it from this more body-centered perspective. And so um, you're aware of the breathing, you're aware of the whole body, and then you're aware of sensations as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then you're aware of emotions coming up out of those sensations. And then the goal is, the, the practice is, instead of getting caught up in the story of the emotion, you want to go back to the sensations and hold the emotion as body sensation. Um, and then you're allowing whatever underlying habit energies to get released. So there's tons of overlap between that and what's in somatic trauma therapy that um when you're practicing, you're, you're practicing awareness of breathing, you're practicing awareness of body sensations. And as you're doing that underlying habit energies or trauma patterns can come up. And the goal is to metabolize those uh, habit energies. And the way you do that is through um, mainly working with body sensation. So when you have emotion, you try to work with it as body sensation. Um, So I think that's one big takeaway is that it's, it's a, There's a much greater focus on body sensation, and that is in keeping with um, core principles of body-centered trauma therapy. So that's a big takeaway. And then the other big takeaway, I think, is if you compare the four establishments with the early Taoist teachings, um, to me, that that gives you the most holistic framework to work with. Um because the early Buddhist teachings don't don't um they don't explicitly get into breath energy and they also don't explicitly deal with sexual energy, whereas the early Taoist teachings do get into sexual energy they do get into the breath energy and so um when you compare those two frameworks together, I think it fills in some gaps in in the early Buddhism that you wouldn't get otherwise. And then so for lay people, then um, we can look at the four establishments in comparison with the early Taoism. And so we can talk about the four establishments then in relation to breath energy, in relation to sexual energy. Um, So how, as lay practitioners, are we working with those energies? How are we cultivating them? How are we practicing with them? and then as I've been saying, the, the original context is uh, meditation to realize Nibbana, but because there's so much overlap with somatic trauma therapy, we can use this contemplative structure um, as a core structure to do um, Buddhist counseling with, basically, um, that as a Buddhist minister, you can use the four establishments as a, stru- as a yogic structure to do counseling with. Um, and so you can apply the teachings into the social context of counseling. And then um, the, the, the main the main thing that we're working with is we're we're trying to work with habit unresolved habit energies and we're trying to metabolize the habit energies. Um, and so that there's a range of habit energies. Um, so as a lay practitioner and dealing with life as a lay practitioner, uh, the habit energies you're working with are are um, happening in that context. Um, and so I think the, these teachings can be applied to the lay context to um, um, help people uh, be, become aware of habit energies and metabolize the habit energies. Um, so this is a lot of stuff that people would be getting already from therapy or from somatic trauma therapy. Um, but you have to go to a therapist and it has to be part of the psychotherapy context. Whereas I'm saying we as Buddhist ministers could use this yogic structure to develop uh, Buddhist counseling. And so we can be talking about our experiences as lay people um, using these core teachings, but um, in the context of lay life, not just in the context of a monastic um being being in the forest or being at a monastery
1: awesome thank you for that um i appreciate it and i can certainly see um a path forward where we develop a conscious sort of uh structured um modality that reflects this this particular uh, branch of Buddhist teachings. Um, obviously you know the, you know it's not sort of like uh, what we're talking about isn't about you know um, overthrowing or throwing out uh, other existing contemplative practices. Uh, even later contemplative practices, um, but but rather sort of looking at uh, this early structure and seeing what we can um, seeing what we can sort of if we can revive it, uh, you know, as as a as a beneficial practice for the present time. And uh, I, I like the idea of it sort of uh, giving us a framework to um, to engage in counseling with, you know, specifically. So, um, yeah, that's great. It's interesting that it's, all, you know, we're talking about, this is very... You know, we're talking about something that's a decade old and, and ha- you know, and of course, when you're people, you know, if you're Jack Cornfield, and you've uh, spent five decades um, pursuing a particular narrative and all of your books have it, you know, <laughs> it's the premise of everything you've published. Um, it's difficult to sort of jump on board. Um, it's going to be difficult for a lot of people to jump on board, so this might be a nice way to um to sort of get a little bit more momentum going you know just one pe- one more piece of the puzzle in terms of building more momentum towards um recognizing the of sort- the more yogic structure of early practices
0: yeah I think the what's happened so far is it's Again, it's mainly been the Theravada scholastic teaching, and then that's been um, put within a, a humanistic Buddhism context. Um, so it's mainly been, um, you know, the Dharma teachings from IMS Spirit Rock, um, or it's been mainly um, what I would say Buddhist informed psychotherapy. So psychotherapy informed by Buddhism. Um, so it's either lay Dharma teachers from the, the spirit rock IMS system, or it's uh psychotherapists who are influenced, um, by Buddhism. So what's been missing is, uh, Buddhist, Buddhist spiritual care by Buddhist ministers that's informed by psychotherapy, uh, that hasn't yet really been developed. So, um, you could argue that there hasn't been a job market and there hasn't been a uh ecosystem or a um a culture that would incentivize trying to figure out how to how to empower buddhist lay ministers um and how to empower them to use buddhist teachings as the core theory and practice and then have it be informed by psychotherapy but not have psychotherapy be the main um the main theory and practice that's informed by buddhism we, I, it should be the opposite way um Yeah. So, so far it's tended to be uh, monastics talking about it within the context of monastic practice. Um, there hasn't yet been um, a culture and an ecosystem that would incentivize trying to develop it um, um, for lay Buddhist ministers. Um, Dustin, do you have a question? Yeah. And, and I mean, like
3: in relation to what you and Corey have been talking about, um my own sort of experience trying to understand and communicate um, the um, three jewels, Uh, the stickiest one is no self. And I have found that this particular process is a, is a a way to get a handle on that um, because the conceptualization place, (laughs) it it like reinforces it. Me thinking my way out of self (laughs) engages, precisely the tools and the dimension like that conceptual overlay um because that's where that comes (laughs) from the whole idea is a conceptual overlay so like returning to uh, which is why i found that like uh Mm -hmm. like postural practice has been a very helpful way for me to like get a handle on that and try to come up with ways to communicate it to other people and to myself um so there's that kind of practical dimension just from like a, a buddhist standpoint um is reinvesting in what's actually happening um you know and not the the analytical level um so just hearing y'all talk about that uh it makes a lot of sense as uh an alternative
2: uh, so that way to kind of
3: approach it
0: um so you got the four establishments. Um and the fourth establishment is dhamma. Um so in in the, uh, in a later dhamma talk I can talk about. So in the 16 exercises of mindfulness of breathing it has the four establishments in it. And for for dhamma it teaches awareness of impermanence and then that results in dispassion. Uh, mainly it means there, there's identification to body and mind as self and so by contemplating impermanence it gives rise to dispassion um, in which you let go of identifying with body and mind as self so that's actually a deep level of spiritual awakening that's being talked about um, but it's as I'll talk about in later Dharma talks that's, that's within the context of the links of dependent origination and it's it's a pretty grounded experiential mm-hmm. process Later later scholastic Buddhism, they talk about the Dhamma as the three marks of existence. And so that's when they start saying all conditioned phenomena are impermanent, suffering, and not self. And so they're going from a more kind of yogic experiential teaching to getting into a more philosophic metaphysical truth claim. Um, And so Tani Sarabiku, another Thai forest monk, he says that that later teaching that everything is impermanent, everything is not self, um, everything is suffering when attached to. That So the way I just stated it, that's more as a big metaphysical truth claim. He said that's something that came later with the scholasticism and with people getting into it more as a philosophy. Um, and then you could argue that other scholastic teachings from Mahayana, um, they also are kind of stepping in and saying, okay, that fourth establishment of Dhamma, now now we're talking about emptiness or now we're talking about the eight consciousnesses. Um, so they all kind of took Dhamma and ran. they ran with it as scholastic teachings and they kind of got divorced from having it be grounded in, no, it's actually this whole yogic process. You're supposed to work with your posture, your breath energy. Then you get to the heart mind. And then when we talk about Dhamma, all we're really talking about is becoming aware of habit energies of how we identify and attach and then disrupting those habit energies. We're not actually trying to make a metaphysical truth claim, trying to prove that there's no self. Right. Uh, <laughs> we're just, if you see a habit of you identifying with something as self, you use the teaching of not self to disrupt that habit. You're not using it to try to um have an insight into the nature of reality as no-self. So that's actually later teachings that came in. It's not that they can't be used effectively to trigger spiritual awakening, but they can so easily become just metaphysical teachings or scholastic teachings where you're just, you're tripping on the teaching of no-self as like uh, a claim about ultimate reality. And that's not that's not what the early yogic teachings were getting at. Well, and the the interesting
3: thing about that is that what prompted me to actually like my question initially was that um, you showed this um, the table that you just showed mm-hmm. for breakdown. It had never occurred to me before to identify Dhamma with the other top levels in the other three columns. I wouldn't have yeah. identified it with Perusa. Um it just, or doubt it just it's not i mean i had always thought of it uh in terms of law right 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 so the so that idea is is kind of a new way to think
0: about it to me for sure yeah and so um you could argue that the buddha he wouldn't talk about nirvana in in positive terms meaning nirvana is a non-dual ground of being uh nirvana is your true nature he tended to he was mainly focused on okay what are the habit energies that um cause rebirth that cause identifying and attaching to the body and mind itself and so what are what are the teachings i can use to disrupt that and then kind of the the implication or the leftover is oh yeah there is this unconditioned there is this nirvana but he tended not to talk about it i think he didn't want people to to conceptualize and get into talking about it um in positive terms and what i mean by po- it, we can look think about christianity they'll say the um apophatic or a cataphatic cataphatic yeah yeah uh so formless mysticism versus form mysticism um you could say the Buddha avoided talking about ultimate reality with a form he was kind of more getting at it from a formless side, but he was really he was really just into the guts of the twelve links and disrupting the twelve links um and he just didn't want to get into the speculation beyond that but if you look at the structure that he came up with there it has tons in common with these other structures um, and when say when you get into Chan Buddhism right. Uh, they will talk about the Buddha as heart-mind and the Buddha as awareness itself. If you get into the Karmakagi tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll talk about Buddha nature. Chan Buddhism also gets into Buddha nature. Um, so to me, it's like, yeah, that, that fourth category does seem to be formless mysticism. And in terms of actual experience, it seems to be pointing at some kind of formless mystical experience. Um, so, even though the Buddha himself didn't say talk about Buddha nature or a non dual ground of being, it seems like that's experientially what he is getting at. But later, 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 the later scholasticism. Like whether or not your monastery got donations, or whether or not your, <laughs> whether or not you survived as a tradition depended on your ability to debate in a scholastic way, um, and so the the scholastic debates around no self, and the and the the scholastic debate of trying to differentiate Buddhism from Hinduism or um, other yogic traditions it prioritizes getting into a wonky scholastic debate. It doesn't prioritize um, trying to see, oh, what could possibly be these common, what could be the common experiential um, underpinning of different yogic traditions? Um, It's like historically there was not an incentive to try to um, point out what the commonalities were. The, The incentive has always been different traditions trying to, Carve out their own niche based on their trying to prove something scholastically.
3: I mean, it's kind of I. I'm a little surprised that at least the presumption that that same process was going on. Um, after seeing so much, like that's the received wisdom on the Western religious traditions mm-hmm. i mean just like uncontroversially uh outside of like fundamentalist circles like you know bibles themselves are like well yeah this is obviously an earlier oral tradition reflected in an earlier gospel that then is written like um augmented um and synthesized and da-da-da-da-da. just as like not particularly um worthy of debate um like framework
0: <laughs> right right <laughs> that's a good so i i see jesus as a, a city state yogi um he's outside of the city of jerusalem he's with his friend john the baptist they're doing yogic practices by a river uh it's an oral tradition um and then later on it got written down and then later on it got um absorbed as part of the whole roman catholic scholasticism and so then christianity became this scholastic uh tradition but i actually think early christianity it actually looks more like a city state yogic uh tradition and and then there were schools of early christians in egypt and um you know around around what is now Palestine, Israel, Syria, Egypt, where you had people engaging in uh contemplative practice and they weren't they weren't developing a scholastic thing that says Jesus is the one and only way, blah, 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 blah. It was like they were actually engaged in in um contemplative practice to attain spiritual awakening. Um but then later on, the Roman Empire absorbed Christianity and then it added in this whole layer of scholasticism and then it squashed all of that. Um, yeah, so it, it, same thing in um, in China and Taoism, the early yogic stuff got suppressed under later Taoism as scholastic philosophy. Um, and then, it, yeah, it just kind of got suppressed. Um, so you may have yogic lineages that are still practicing it or are reactivating it. Um, but that's almost in spite of the scholastic stuff. It's like the scholastic stuff is not supporting the yogic stuff. Sometimes it happens and that's the ideal when you have them line up and they support each other. But a lot of times it's just the scholastic gets do- dominates over the yogic. Yeah, we we could have had centuries of comparing yogic traditions with each other and building up a common yoga. (laughs) Um, If we hadn't gotten so obsessed with the reading and writing and the conceptual stuff, um, a long time ago, we could have had a a comparative yogic uh, framework with these different traditions supporting each other. Or even now, say, for example, with contemporary Buddhism, we we could have been, 20 years ago, we could have already been making these deep connections with somatic trauma therapy and early Buddhist teachings. Um, But uh, yeah, it just all got, uh, we got so caught up with the the scholastic stuff, it's like it all got lost. So yeah, the going back to these modes of knowledge production, it's you've got a village based system that come that will come up with shamanic uh theory and practice. You've got a city state system that'll come up with yogic stuff, and then you've got an imperial system based on the the clerical monastics reading and writing, and that has that has a that will come out with a scholastic tradition. And then now you have the modern um nation state with the modern university, and then it's coming out with its own version of stuff um, so the obvious example would be you know the conversation between Buddhism and neuroscience that's been a product of the modern nation state academic system and neuroscience being like one of the big deals um so so yeah, it's like. You have to look at the underlying economic political structure, um, and th- that it's it's co-arising with the knowledge production, the theory and practice that comes out of it, the tradition that comes out of it.
3: Yeah, like what what constitutes being established in those different uh, knowledge production modes?
0: Yeah. Okay, so we've gone over. It's um, 11.43, so we can go ahead and um, end for now. Are there any final questions or comments before I hit the stop stop button on the recording? Uh, no.
1: Do you want to do a dedication of merit?
0: Sure, I can do that. Um, okay, so I'll do some chanting based on what we've got on our website here so the mukti vihara website Okay, so I will chant the three refuges and then the closing verse, which has a sharing merit inside of it. Okay, well, I won't use my bell because
2: it's not picking up on my mic. Okay. (laughs) Bhuram-sharanam-gachami Tamam-sharanam-gachami Sangam sharanam ga dutiyam Duthi yampi sharanam ga chami. Duthi dhammam sharanam ga chami. Duthi sangam sharanam ga chami tatiyam fi buddham sharanam gacchami tatiyam fi sharanam gacchami tatiyam fi sangam sharanam gacchami reciting the sutras Practicing the way of awareness gives rise to benefit without limit. I vow to share the fruit with all beings. I vow to offer tribute to parents, teachers, friends, and numerous beings who give guidance and support along the path. Okay, thank you, everybody.
0: I'll hit the stop record.